Well, let's take our Bibles and turn to Exodus chapter 20. Just like last week, uh, we're going to read uh, the entire Ten Commandments together. Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 to 21. And you'll find our reading on page 61 of the Pew Bibles, page 61. It's good for us to refresh our minds on what the law says. Sometimes we can assume that we know the Ten Commandments, but it's good for us to read them over and over again uh, so that they have a place in our minds and we're conscious of what the Lord says to us. So the Ten Commandments, Exodus chapter 20, we're beginning at verse 1 and we're reading down to verse 21. And this is God's holy word to us. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbour. You shall not covet your neighbour's house, you shall not covet your neighbour's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbour's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Amen. And we thank God for his word to us this evening. Let's take our Bibles then and turn to Exodus chapter 20. We're thinking about the second commandment together tonight. Uh, You'll find Exodus 20 on page 61 of the Pew Bibles, page 61. And as you're turning to that passage, let's pray for a moment together. Father, we thank you again for Jesus, for his beautiful and saving name. And we pray tonight that as we look at Jesus' word together, that you would speak to us again. We pray that you would come by your spirit and help us understand the second commandment so that we may keep ourselves from idols. Father, help us in these moments and we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. 
Well, tonight it's the second commandment, having us considered the first commandment last Sunday. Uh, I wonder, are you good at sharing? Sharing, are you good at it? Uh, What are the things that you just won't share? Uh, You might share a starter or dessert with your husband or wife, boyfriend or girlfriend. Uh, You might share your last Rolo with someone, but what would you not share with under any circumstances? I have sharing issues when it comes to crisps. Feels good to get it off my chest. Specifically, hunky-dory buffalo-flavoured crisps and M&S salt and vinegar chipsticks. If you leave me alone with a bag of either of those and come back half an hour later, you can be sure that there will be nothing left. They'll be gone in the blink of an eye. Sharing is hard sometimes. It's hard to share your favourite crisps, our favourite sweets, our favourite chocolate, We teach our children to share. It's one of the most basic things that we want them to understand. When we leave them in creche, when we take them to treasure chest, we give them that briefing beforehand, don't we? Make sure you share today. We have people around for a a play date and the briefing is even more severe than the one before. It's something like share your toys and make sure that everyone gets a turn. But it's hard and there can be tantrums, especially when somebody eats my hunky-dory crisps. And it takes a while for the message to get through. It can take a while for the concept of sharing to take root in a child's mind. On the other hand, as important as it is to share, it's also important to realize that some things aren't meant to be shared. A really small suite, some confidential information like answers to an exam, or to take a very serious example, the sexual love between a husband and wife. Things like that aren't meant to be shared. The, the thing is, in, in spiritual terms, we all have sharing issues. The issues start when we're children and simply grow and fester in our hearts. The issues start with toys and sweets, but we move on to other things, money and power and success. We, we have sharing issues in spiritual terms because we expect God to tolerate us worshipping something else alongside him. But through the first and second commandments, he says, no, I won't share with any other so-called God. You shall have no other gods before me, and you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. Last week, we thought about how the first commandment tells us to worship God exclusively, to shun all idolatry, and to turn to Christ uniquely. The second commandment continues the issue of worship and forbids self-willed worship. Self-willed worship is us worshipping God as we choose rather than as he demands. To put it simply, the first commandment forbids false gods. The second commandment forbids false worship. In particular, the the second commandment makes two prohibitions. It rules out two things. First of all, we're not to make any images that represent God in any form. And secondly, we're not to worship images of any kind. Now, the second commandment doesn't intend to outlaw painting or artwork. The tabernacle in the Old Testament displayed angels and palm trees and was, was beautifully decorated. God isn't against beauty, but what he prohibits is giving any, any object spiritual importance as if man-made things can bring us closer to God represent God or establish communion with God. Now the Old Testament is full of examples of God's people using man-made stuff for self-willed worship. 
The golden calf is probably the most famous example. The story is found in Exodus 32. Aaron proclaimed a feast to God and the people declared that these were the gods who brought them up out of Egypt. The Israelites weren't worshipping Baal. They were trying to worship the Lord, their God, but they were doing it in the wrong way. They were violating the second commandment. The second commandment is one of the longest of the ten and it's important that we understand it. But before we unpack its meaning and application, one of the big questions that Christians often have when it comes to the Ten Commandments is, are they still binding today? Do they have any abiding relevance for us as believers? The the answer to that question comes in part by making a distinction between the three types of law in the Bible. They're on the screen for us. There's the moral law, there's the civil law, and there's the ceremonial law. And these were all given in the Old Testament. The, the moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments. It's the righteous and eternal standard for our relationship with God and others. The, the civil law consisted of the laws that governed Israel as a nation under God. These included guidelines for waging war, restrictions on land use, regulations for debt, and penalties for specific violations of Israel's legal code. The ceremonial law consisted of regulations for celebrating various religious festivals and for worshipping God in his sanctuary. There was lots of material on unclean and clean foods, instructions for purity, instructions about how to offer sacrifices. For example, God gave detailed regulations that covered specific things like who was supposed to cut which animal's throat and how and what was to be done with the blood. Now, the, the, the ceremonial law is no longer binding All its regulations pointed forward to Jesus. So Paul explains this simply and plainly in Colossians 2.17. He's talking about the ceremonial law and he writes this. He says, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, all the types and shadows and sacrifices point forward to Jesus. And now that he has come, the ceremonial law is no longer binding. The civil law is also no longer binding, but for a slightly different reason. The church is not a state. We do have a king, Jesus, but his kingdom is spiritual. Therefore, although the civil laws of the Old Testament contain useful principles, God's people are no longer bound by their specific regulations. Today, the people of God are governed by church discipline, and that has spiritual and that has spiritual reality rather than civil consequences. And this is quite important to understand. The the, the understanding of the civil law is quite important for us, particularly with what's happening in the Middle East at the moment. The, The modern Israel that we know now and hear about on the news is not the same as ancient Israel. It's not the same. As a nation in the Old Testament, God called Israel his people. But when we move into the New Testament, the church replaces Israel and is given that distinction. We are called the people of God. So the ceremonial law, it's no longer binding. The civil law is no longer binding. But what about the moral law? Well, the, the New Testament never declares an end to God's moral law as the standard of our lives. The Westminster Confession of Faith says that God's moral law is a perfect rule of righteousness and that it stands forever. Think of it this way. The moral law is written on our hearts and is part of the fabric of what it means to be human. God's moral law is the reason we know the difference between right and wrong. 
And that's why the Ten Commandments are still relevant for us. They point us to the path of life, the path to freedom. Our culture says, nonsense, if you follow these rules, if you follow these laws, life will be boring and you'll be constrained. But through them, the Lord says, no, no, these are good for you and these will help you follow me in this broken world. That's a bit more background then. I'm trying to drip feed it to you over these weeks. I hope I haven't completely lost you already this evening. We're going to think about the second commandment in the rest of our time, and it will be helpful for us to read it again together at this point. Just look at Exodus 20, verses 4 to 6. This is the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. There are four parts to this commandment. Although it's one of the longest, it's easy to understand. The four parts are the rule, the reason, the warning, and the promise. And those are the four things that we're going to think about as we try and understand and apply this commandment. First of all, then, the rule. The rule is very simple. Don't make idols and don't worship them. The King James Version puts it in this way. It says, don't make any graven images. Uh, our, our translation, Pew Bibles, says carved images. A graven or carved images comes close to the original meaning. An idol was something crafted by a tool. Well, whether it was carved out of wood, chiseled out of stone, or engraved in metal, it was cut and shaped by human hands. It was a man-made representation of some divine being. This didn't mean that the Israelites couldn't use tools, and it didn't mean that they couldn't produce artwork, as we've already said. The tabernacle was beautifully decorated. The second commandment doesn't rule out making things. It rules out making things to serve as objects of worship. It's clarified in the second part of the rule, you shall not bow down to them or serve them. Now, the Israelites were strictly forbidden to make images of God to use in worship. Although God appreciates artistry, he will not tolerate idolatry. The, the, the rule comes with a list of the kinds of, thing, the kinds of idols that God forbids. Now, just look at it. It says, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. And that pretty much covers it. Nothing in the sky, nothing in the ground, nothing in the sea. In other words, the Israelites weren't allowed to represent God in any form, in anything in all of creation. Now remember the context the Israelites were living in and where they had come from. We talked about this with the boys and girls earlier. They had been in Egypt, but they'd been brought out of Egypt and the Egyptians had worshipped lots of gods, and nearly all of them were represented by animals. For example, the god Horus had the head of a falcon, and the god Anubis had the head of a jackal. When it came to the Egyptians and their idols, any animal was up for grabs. But the god of Israel refused to be represented in the image of any of his creatures. There are lots of good reasons for this rule, but the one God specifically mentions is his love. The second commandment says, You shall not make for yourself a carved image, for I, am, for, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. So we've got the rule, don't make idols, and we've got the reason for the rule. 
God forbids idolatry because of his jealousy. To use a more positive and also more accurate word, it's because of his zeal, the, the, the burning passion of his love. Now, the word jealousy or the concept of jealousy doesn't get a lot of headlines these days. Uh, when people talk about jealousy, they probably actually mean something more like envy, the desire to get something that doesn't belong to you. But when something really does belong to you, there are times when it needs to be protected. A holy jealousy is one that guards someone's rightful possession. Let's try and think of an illustration. And we used the same one last week, but it works again here. It's the illustration of a married couple. No husband who truly loves his wife could possibly endure seeing her in the arms of another man. It would make him intensely jealous. And God feels the same way about his people. His commitment to us is total. His love is exclusive, passionate, intense. In a word, it's jealous. Now, it's not that God is some insecure psychopath. That's what we think of when we hear the word jealous, someone who is possessive and controlling over someone else and someone who doesn't give another person any kind of rope at all. But when we talk about God being jealous, we're talking about an intensely caring devotion to the objects of his love. If that's what jealous means, then God has to be jealous. He loves us too much not to be. The second commandment protects the honor of his love. He not only loves us, but he also wants us to love him in return. That means we should worship him in a way that is worthy of his honor. He has the right to tell us how he wants to be worshiped. And he tells us not to worship idols instead of him. God's jealousy explains why the second commandment ends with a warning. The rule, the reason, the warning. That's our third point. Just look at the commandment again. It says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me. The, the warning is that children will be punished for the sins of their fathers. Now, the word translated iniquity has the sense of something being twisted. We mentioned that last week as well. It suggests that idolatry is, is a kind of pervasion, a turning against God. It may seem very religious to worship idols, but since God hates idolatry, it's really a way of showing hatred to him. And it's not surprising that God threatens to punish those who do such a hateful thing. The question people have, though, as they read the second commandment is, is God's curse just? Is it really fair that God judges a person for someone else's sin? Is it really fair to punish children for the sins of their father? That's what the warning says. If you make idols and worship them, I will punish your children. Now, people try and get around this part of the commandment in all sorts of ways. Some people come at it from a sociological perspective. They point out that a father's sin has consequences that can last for generations. They also point out that because children imitate their parents, sin tends to run in families. One generation can set the spiritual tone for the next. The commandment says something more, though. It says that God punishes children for the sins of their fathers. What a father passes on to his children isn't just a bad example, but the guilt of his sin. Well, what's going on here is that God judges families on the basis of his covenant. The Israelites, remember, were in covenant with God. And when the covenant head of any family sinned against God, his whole family was judged. If you want an example... For your homework, you should go home and read 2 Kings 10, 1 to 17. 
All 70 of Ahab's sons were killed for their father's idolatry. Now, this doesn't deny individual responsibility. God holds us all as individuals accountable for our sin. And he never condemns the innocent. He only condemns the guilty. Well, what's notable in the second commandment is that it says that God will punish three or four generations of those who hate me. It's not just the fathers who hate God, but also their children. The logic is pretty straightforward. The children hate God as much as their father did, and that isn't surprising because of the way they were raised. In that way, it's fair for God to punish them for their sin. But along with the warning, God also promises to show mercy to those who love him and who keep his commandments and who don't serve idols. The rule, the reason, the warning, and the promise. The promise is more powerful than the warning because its blessing doesn't just last for three or four generations, it lasts for a thousand. In other words, it will last forever. This was God's promise going all the way back to Abraham. In Genesis 17 verse 7, it says, God said to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be, to, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. All, all we have to do is respond to the God who loves us by loving him in return. The, the warning in the second commandment might, might seem deeply discouraging, maybe even disturbing, but God's blessing triumphs over his curse. If you keep this commandment, you will be eternally blessed. The, the rule, the reason, the warning, and the promise. The second commandment. It's really interesting to look at it in that way. It portrays idol worship as progressive. Do not make, do not bow down, do not serve. It portrays idol worship as contagious, causing trouble for generation after generation. And it portrays God as zealous for his glory. He is deeply committed to being worshipped as he deserves. But surely we're all right. I mean, you're not out in the fields bowing down before your cows at least I hope you're not. It'd be kind of weird if you were. Surely we've got this idolatry thing sorted. Not really. It's actually a big problem for us. The, the, the theme of idolatry is taken in a curious direction in the New Testament. Another reminder of something from last week. When we read the Ten Commandments, we've got to remember that Jesus transposes them. When it comes to the comparison between the Ten Commandments and the teaching of Jesus... It's the same melody, but in a different key. Or, let's think about it another way. Think of a refraction of light. When a beam of light passes through a transparent prism, the various electromagnetic waves make up the appearance of colorless light, and they change speed and so bend apart, giving the appearance to the human eye of different colors. I feel like I need to give you an example so that you understand what I've just said. Think of a rainbow. A rainbow is a naturally occurring refraction. Or think of, the, th- think of the album cover of Pink Floyd's classic album, Dark Side of the Moon. There's a picture of it on the screen. A single ray of white light passes through the left side of the prism and it comes out the other side as red, orange, yellow, green, blue, and purple. Th- th- think of the Ten Commandments as a ray of white light passing through the prism of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. That should be a helpful mental picture of the transformation Jesus brings. The new Moses refracts the light of the first Moses and makes some things clearer, 
some things more intense, and some things transform beyond recognition. The first and second commandments provide examples of refraction as intensification. Their application is more intense because of Jesus. Jesus saw these commands as extending to the problematic human tendency to worship the stuff of creation. In spiritual terms, we all have sharing issues. The issues start when we're children and they simply grow and fester in our hearts. The issues start with toys and sweets, but we move on to money and power and success. And according to the New Testament, money can become a god and greed can become idolatry. Which brings us to the New, to, to the New Testament and to the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is generally considered as Jesus' exposition and application of the Ten Commandments. Listen to what he says in Matthew 6, 24 and 25. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Well, what Jesus is saying there is that money can become a sort of deity that people love and serve as master. Those three words, love, serve and master, would have been associated with God in Jesus' day. God is the true master who is worthy of our love and service. Some 30 years after Jesus, Paul comes along and picks up a similar theme. Uh, We've quoted from Colossians already this evening, but here's another quote from Colossians, this time from chapter 3, verse 5. But Paul says that the pursuit of material wealth is idolatry. He says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Greed and idolatry might sound like two completely different things, but there's a real connection. Both involve our devotion to created things rather than to the creator. It's as if we hope that the accumulation of small things will make up for a lack of grand meaning. And this is where the Bible offers a healthy perspective for us. The stuff of creation is definitely good. You read the Genesis account of creation And that's what the emphasis is. The stuff of creation is definitely good. But when the stuff of creation dominates our affections, captures our hearts, and takes away our love for the Lord, it's an idol. We need to hear this, and our world needs to hear this. Our world loves idols and worships idols. As we look at a world that worships things that were never meant to be worshipped, We should respond in the way that Paul responded as he walked around Athens. In Acts 17, we read that he went to the city of Athens and his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. The reason we don't react in the same way is because we worship the idols of our day just like everyone else. We've got sharing issues, spiritually speaking. Well, we have sharing issues in spiritual terms because we expect God to tolerate us worshipping something else alongside him. But through the first and second commandments, he says, no, 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 I won't share with any other so-called God. And the thing is, despite our sin, despite our stupidity when it comes to worshipping stuff, 
God has shared his only son so that we might know him. While we were yet sinners, idolaters, rebels, Christ died for us. And Christ has uniquely fulfilled the second commandment. He showed showed forth the Father to his disciples. To look upon Christ was to look upon the face of him who, who, who could not be seen on Sinai. Jesus has done what was seemingly impossible. He allowed humans to see the God who cannot be seen. That's the mystery and majesty of his coming. We don't need pictures. The truth is that we don't know what Jesus looked like. And the Bible makes no effort to give us a physical description. We don't need statues. We don't need icons. We have the icon. Christ is the image of the invisible God. We look to him for our salvation And we look to him to help us put him first. So let's worship him and not the stuff in our lives. Let's remember the rule, the reason, the warning and the promise contained in the second commandment. And let's commit ourselves to living it out this week. Let's commit ourselves to living out our call to worship. And we know that the son of God has come And has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true. In his son Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Commandment number one. No other gods except for me. Commandment number two. Don't bow down to idols. Let's pray for God's help as we seek to live this out. Father, we thank you for your word to us and we confess our idol worship, our worship of created things rather than your creator. We thank you that you're a God who forgives our sins when we turn to you in repentance and faith. And we pray that this week we would remember the end of 1 John, that we would keep ourselves from idols, that you would come and work in us by your spirit and Tear from us the dearest idol that we have known. And Father, we pray for those who haven't yet trusted in Christ. We pray that they would stop worshipping other things and that they would turn to him, worship him uniquely and call on him in faith. Father, help us in these things. Help us to live out your law in the week ahead. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.